Hi, this is the Leading Language and Literature Podcast with me, Chris Jordan. In this episode, I'm talking to Alice Gibbons. Alice is the IBDP coordinator for English at West Island School Hong Kong and also one of three contributors to a 2019 textbook for the IBDP Language and Literature course. In this episode, we discuss the best book she's ever read, taught or been taught, Alice's experience as a teacher at home in the UK and abroad, how the opportunity to write a textbook came about and what she gained from the process, Alice's thoughts on the new iteration of the IBDP English A course and what she likes and dislikes about it, her interpretation of what intertextuality means in practice and how she implements it in the classroom, the best three language or non-literary bodies of work Alice has come across or taught and the lit texts that work well with them. And finally, the best resources for people looking to continually improve within the DP. Thanks again to Alice for finding time to discuss English at IBDP level and offering so many useful ideas for those building or reviewing a curriculum. If you want to be kept up to date on when educational chat like this happens, then be sure to subscribe to the podcast and or follow me on Twitter at Chris Jordan HK. All right, Alice, uh, what is the best book you've ever read, taught, or been taught? Hey, so um, I love this question, by the way. Um, I've thought quite a lot about it and what I think maybe makes a really good teaching text. Um, I'm not going to go into my, you know, the best book I've ever read. I still think that if you can say the best book you've ever read, you probably haven't read enough books, to be honest. But for teaching text, for me, it has to be a book that moves the student, you know, and you can see it visibly. Either there's some kind of like light bulb moment or, you know, you can just see something change as you, you know, teach that text. And I think it's really dependent on the kids themselves. So these, some of these are going to be pretty mainstream, but perhaps, you know, these books do become you know, well-taught, well-trodden text just because they do have that capacity to be universally relevant but and when I was in Manchester teaching a lot of students who you know I had quite I had quite boy heavy classes and quite a lot of you know social issues you know students who were tied up in gang related issues outside of class and you know the book that worked the best of mice and men I had you know full-blown you know kids who were involved in criminal activity etc and you know they were moved to tears by it you know the sort of you know, masculine male friendships, you know, the reliance on, you know, I suppose like family links that aren't, you know, traditional family, so to speak. But I found here in Hong Kong, I think because of the political situation, etc., Animal Farm, every single time I teach Animal Farm, you just see there's there's moments in it, you know, there's a specific moment where one of the characters, you know, wants to express dissent but can't because, you know, they just don't have the language to be able to do so. And I always get a bit of a light bulb moment from that. And there are other parts of it as well. Um, so, yeah, I find Animal Farm works really well here. Persepolis at the moment works really well. Macbeth. Mm. But, yeah, um, I've had, you know, we've talked about the vegetarian before. The vegetarian, I think, works really well in our local context. So there's a few of them, but yeah, for me, the thing that's kind of universal across them is that light bulb moment, so to speak. 
Mm, that's quite a nice sort of way to put it. Actually, I never thought about it in that respect. That you could, you could do a book back home, and it absolutely um, resonate with all the kids. But then try it in Hong Kong, and it means nothing to them. Yeah. So yeah, the, the context specific thing is really, really important. You sort of you mentioned there, then Manchester. What is your experience as a a teacher at home in the UK and then um, abroad up till now? Well, so I enter teaching in perhaps, well, probably not an unusual way, but perhaps not, you know, a more traditional way. So I did the Teach First programme in the UK. Um, I'm not sure if you know much about it, but it's basically a programme where they take graduates. They call them, in inverted commas, exceptional graduates. Not that I would ever, you know, categorise myself as that. A little bit arrogant there, isn't it? Um, But they have this idea that they're going to take graduates uh, from decent universities who've done well in university. And the idea is that you go into a tough, challenging school, a state school that perhaps struggles with recruitment, etc. And you are tied to that school for two years. Then they pay for your PGCA. They used to pay for your master's and all of that. So that's how I entered teaching as I did that programme. You know, I had various reasons that made me want to do that. Um, but to be honest, like, yeah, it very, it very accidentally brought me into teaching because the idea was you did that for two years and then you'd get fast-tracked in recruitment for, you know, some other graduate programmes with, like, KPMG and civil service and things like that. So to be honest, that's what I had my eye on to begin with. But here I am, 10 years later, um, still teaching. Um, so, yeah, I, I entered through that. And so obviously the school that I was in in the UK was was pretty challenging, you know, in terms of, its social context, you know, kind of, you know, the area had left, you know, issues, you know, social issues, social problems. Um, a lot of students who come from like sort of lower socioeconomic background and um, issues with, you know, obviously academic results. So there's a lot of pressure, you know, I think a lot of the time you did sort of feel as though you weren't necessarily teaching the subject, but you were, you were kind of doing a lot of sort of social work, to be honest. And, you know, a lot of, behavior management a lot of you know just trying to survive almost and just trying to get kids through and get them to pass qualifications so that you know they they could have you know a few more opportunities and a bit more of a chance in life but um after that I only did that for two years and I did stay in teaching but you know I kind of had this idea I'd go abroad for a couple of years and then come back and again accidentally ended up abroad in Hong Kong and it's been you know it's it's just been completely different for me. You know, I love teaching in an international school. I didn't ever think I'd be the kind of person who would suit being in a private international context, but I love it. I just, I love being able to teach my subject. I just love being able to talk to students about literature without having the kind of restrictions that are placed on teachers in the UK in terms of paperwork and Ofsted and tax requirements and you know, I do love when I'm teaching, you know, we just talked about, you know, some text work better in different contexts. I love having the variety of perspectives that you do have in an international set. And so for me, like the two things have been really important in terms of making me who I am as a teacher. But one's definitely been easier, let's put it that way. One's probably been a little bit more, I don't know, important. I don't know. But yeah, it's very different, very different contexts. Yeah, and after you moved to Hong Kong, and you've been in um, two school two schools since you've been here. Um, yeah, if that's right. And then the first one while you were there, which is it's kind of a it's a it does a few different exam specs, doesn't it? It does the IB, 
obviously, and then it does. Do they do EdXL, AQA? They do a few yeah, so different. Yeah, when I started, actually, they were doing EdXL for GCSE, um, and then flipped over onto doing AQA, which is obviously the UK board. So that was quite interesting doing that UK board, obviously in an international context. Yeah. Um, and then obviously later on going on to IB. But it was quite, I think the thing with the AQA syllabus that I really liked is even though it is quite Anglo-centric, it doesn't mean that, you know, it's monocultural. It's it's interesting because mm. you would think that. But also it's really good in the sense that there's a lot of grounding in, you know, what I would say is texts that do have real literary merit and worth. And it gives the students quite a good ground and to then I be able to branch out a little bit more into, should we say, more contemporary texts um, that wouldn't necessarily be considered part of the canon yet, but may mm-hmm. eventually. So, yeah, I thought there was, a, there was definitely benefits to that. And then obviously at McCorrin School, um, we do the Cambridge IGCSE, um, which is definitely a very international qualification, which I like. Mm-hmm. I do aspect of it. Mm. And then what's uh, obviously as part of you your instruction um, in the IB like diploma program, you got approached or the department got approached. I'm not sure how it happened actually um, <laughs> with regard to this this textbook. Like how did that? Uh, so you you um, to be clear about it, you wrote a textbook designed to help um, students through the new uh, language yeah. A course that started in when did it start? 2019 around then. So like how did yeah. that? opportunity come about and what did you gain from that process so the way it came about was um, my head of department at that time who is the co one of my co-authors on that um textbook lindsay lindsay tandy she was already writing for the ib review um, and she was actually approached by the publishing house hodder um, they'd obviously seen her writing in the IB review and thought she was someone, you know, who would be, you know, well-placed to create this textbook. And, you know, one of the one of the things, you know, I really respect Lindsay as an English practitioner, as a leader. And one of the things that, you know, she's very good at is, you know, giving opportunities to her staff. And she basically just said to us as a faculty, is there anyone, you know, I think all of you are kind of, experienced enough to do this knowledgeable enough to do this is there anyone who would want to do it and it was just something I was really interested in because you know I'd been teaching the IB for quite a while um I was an examiner at that point as well been on various workshops and I knew that this new course was coming in I just really wanted I suppose to get to grips with that and I thought well what better way to do that than you know, looking, you know, really in depth at the guide, at the spec and, you know, talking to the experts who are involved in the construction of the course um, to actually make this this textbook. And I'd say that ultimately that is the thing that I gained most from it is, you know, I just felt going into the actual teaching of that course to the students I currently teach and did teach at the beginning of the course. I just, I felt like I really knew what the course was about and I didn't have the kind of trepidation that I usually have going into teaching a course and that it was the best it was the best CPD I could have asked for to be honest um mm. and that was the main thing I gained from it but one I mean one of the other things um was and one of the things that I love about the new course is how free it is with text choices and I found that when I was writing my part of the textbook and researching the text includes 
I did obviously include a lot of texts that I taught before and that I knew and I loved. But I was able to, you know, read and look into and include a lot of texts I hadn't taught before and which, mm-hmm. you know, I do now teach. And that was, for me, the most rewarding part of it was, you know, me being able to go back to what I love doing, which is, you know, reading texts and discovering which ones that I can teach to students. It was a bit like, honestly, it was a bit like going back to university. It was uh, it was great in that in that respect mm. is it do you have you got any sympathy for those people who uh write textbooks and because sometimes you go to schools and um whether it's first language english or like the ibdp mm. and so sometimes you kind of get uh you hear i'm sure i'm guilty of saying it in the past where it's just like oh, i hate that textbook i really don't like that textbook i prefer this one i prefer that one have you got any sympathy uh for those kind of people now in terms of how difficult the task is like what what's the most difficult part of it yeah I mean I absolutely have sympathy for you know people who write I mean especially I would say textbooks that focus on more technical and mechanical mm-hmm. aspects of a subject especially English I can't imagine how difficult it would be to write you know a grammar textbook mm-hmm. especially you know a kind of foundational grammar textbook the thing that was easier about this one is that from the very outset, it was very much, you know, our, I suppose the task that we were given wasn't to be a textbook that was necessarily, you know, posing lots of questions and filling the gaps and, you know, lots of activities. It was an instructional textbook. It was kind of designed with the idea that you can pick up the textbook and see some text that you could potentially choose, you know, uh-huh. use from them. Um so, I mean, the, if you want me to be honest, the most difficult part of writing the textbook was um, it was it was just the work into deadlines. We had very tight deadlines. And of course, you know, when you're writing about something you're really passionate about, which all three of us, you know, me, Joseph and Lindsay, were all very passionate about English and about literature and language texts. It was it was difficult feeling so you wanted to do justice to what you were writing about in the deadline that you had to do it in I think that was the biggest issue and the proofreading I'm not going to lie that was pretty um, (laughs) that wasn't fun I mean I think that I was quite naive I thought oh you know I'm just going to write this textbook maybe it'll come back once but I mean when you're on the fourth proof so there what you've written I'm you know I maybe actually have more sympathy for the students when they're um, having to redraft essays to be honest you know yeah exactly right um your so you I think yours was kind of like the um, the third section or the section on intertextuality Mm. um which is because it's the three what do they call them the three areas of knowledge or something like that so readers writers of exploration that's right so yours was intertextuality Uh what was your interpretation of what it means in practice and how do you implement it now that you're actually teaching the course um so I think when I actually you know before I started writing that section that was where I kind of started and that's where you know I think at the beginning of the text of my section the intertextuality when I actually do say you know, I, I think I've put something actually that probably in hindsight seems quite glib and it says, you know, intertext in Latin means, you know, interwoven. Whereas I suppose like that is the way that I have always seen intertextuality is this idea that, you know, text, any text that we teach, you know, it, it doesn't exist in isolation. It is completely interwoven with 
lots and lots of other texts that have either come before it, you know, that have come after it even. And, you know, these and they're connected. They're all connected. And whether that's like, you know, a deliberate connection on that the, the writer themselves has created, whether it's a connection that's kind of organically occurred or whether that is something that a reader themselves has brought to the text themselves. You know, it, it, that's the way I look at it is that it's just all, it's all connections, you know. Um, it's, I mean, when you talk about, you know, how do I implement it in my own classroom? I suppose one of the things that's very lucky, you know, we're very lucky teaching the IB is that through, for example, the IO, we, we have to teach intertextuality. You can't teach literature without, you know, referring to other texts. And for me, that's one of the better things about this new iteration of the course is that, you know, for example, you know, in paper one, in the past iteration of paper one, you kind of looked at texts very much independently, individually, you know, even as part of the other two parts of the course when you did FOAs and written tests, a lot of the time you were looking at texts in isolation but now there's just so much more of looking at those non-literary texts and the literary works together and seeing you know and by looking at them together you think about what they bring to the reader together and not in isolation and that can be so much more powerful but for me it's just very simple it's not just doing the assessments and teaching text together as part of these the assessments you know, for me, when I'm doing any kind of text, whether it's a literary work, whether it's a non-literary text, it's going back to the beginning and thinking, where did this all begin? So, you know, I wouldn't mm. teach, I wouldn't teach, you know, a, a propaganda speech or a political speech without going back and thinking about, you know, rhetorical features that Aristotle kind of sells. Mm. I wouldn't, I wouldn't teach gender, you know, gender especially in, you know, Western literature or non-literary text without going back to, you know what was said in the Bible about Adam and Eve and, you know, the way that, that, you know, that story is presented. And so for me, that's what it's all about is going back in time. And, you know, that works with the canon as well. You know, I think looking, for example, um, uh, you know, things fall apart. I would, you know, looking at that and looking at Joseph Conrad is, you know, that you've always got to link the two together. I think, you know, that's kind of how I do it is I always just go back to the beginning and work from there. Yeah, I, I, they um, this sort of when when the thing got like released, the new um, style of course. I remember like a lot of chat about like what kind of texts would go well together, and there seemed to be two mm-hmm. types of um, examples. One was just two texts that you wouldn't necessarily put side by side, but mm-hmm. that maybe maybe one that's like very very canonical and one that's very contemporary. So maybe you do have something like. I don't know, Frankenstein, and then you look at something like, I don't know, the memory police or something like that. Yeah. Two texts that seem completely different, but but what I've also noticed is, and it, this isn't, um, I don't know if it's a negative or a positive really, but it seems to me that like a lot of departments now are looking for books that are like almost like a rewriting of an old mm. text. So the classic example is that, um, and is it Antigone and Home Yeah. Fire? So yeah, there's that one, that and lot. then Frankenstein, and then what's that Baghdad Frankenstein or something like that, which is um, obviously just like another rewriting. Yeah. So is it? Do you think both of those things are legitimate kind of interpretations of intertextual intertextuality, or is one more, I don't know, more of a purer choice than the other in terms of what the IB intended? Do you reckon? 
I, don't, I mean, I would, from my personal you know, perspective on this would be, I think they're both completely legitimate. Mm. Um, I think, again, yeah, if we just go back to, I suppose, what intertextuality is, and if it is just, you know, the connections, the links, the interweaving of text across time, then, yeah, why not do mm. a rewrite? I mean, ultimately, if we do think about, you know, what, you know, as you say, a rewrite of a text is, you know, ultimately not is not all literature a rewrite of something that's come yeah. before it you know when I teach you know, for paper two you know I teach dolls house streetcar the vegetarian and I always say to the students you know Mr Chong um Stanley and mm. Torval are all just the same character across mm. time they're just and it's not you know I don't think Han Kang looked at Torvalds and said I want to make a Korean 21st century um Torvalds but mm. I think that you can't you can't when you look at those two characters they are so you know there's so many similarities and links between them that you know you yeah I mean I don't I think whether it's a deliberate rewrite or not those connections are there and those connections are valid to examine so yeah I don't think that one's purer than the other however what you're saying about what the IB intended who knows <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and as a final point on that, I think any kind of Latin translation or etymology is definitely the best way to start oh, a textbook cool. chapter, in my opinion. Yeah, <laughs> who doesn't who doesn't love a Latin kind of uh, or Greek uh, etymological you. explanation? You know, I went to a convent school, so I've got to put that Latin education to good use somewhere. <laughs> um, you mentioned before about the I/O and how like that comparative element between either lit written in English and uh, literature written not in English or if it's lang lit it's like the language and the literature um that that's that's an advantage in terms of looking at like intertextuality as a skill what do you like and dislike about this new version of the course like is is there you might not necessarily dislike anything but is there anything which you think they really um got right this time around and maybe something which is still um, a thorn in the side of teachers? Um, I mean, I think one of the things that has always been a strength of the IB, and, you know, I'm really glad that it's still in there, is the freedom that you have with text choices. Um, I mean, I think that now, if, if there is any curriculum, English curriculum or course out there that is restrictive with text choices, I mean, I don't really understand what they're doing, to be honest. Um, I think that that is an absolute, you know, strength of the IB is you can tailor make this course, you know, largely. I know that people will always complain about the PRL, etc. But, you know, the, the quantity and the breadth of text choices on the PRL is, you know, amazing. And, you know, you still do have free choices, etc. But you can tailor make your course for, you know, any class that you have in front of you, any ability, any context, you know, social you know nationality whatever you know you can tailor make it ability wise but yeah so I think that's you know a real strength of course and as I say I know that the IO is controversial but I think for language and literature it works I do think it works really well and for me the students get so much from being able to link that literary work with the non-literary text I think that it breeds you know when you've got you know texts that are from the canon and you're linking them to something that's so contemporary, it just breathes new life into them. You know, I'm quite guilty for doing that. I quite enjoy, you know, I've 
I've taught Brown in poems and, you know, I've got them to look at episodes of Love Island and compare them to each other. And it just, it brings so much joy to the text that I think could potentially be flat if you didn't do that, you know. But, I th- and I also think I really like what people want that they don't have the comparative aspect to that now. I think that's a good, that was a good move, to be honest. Mm. Um, some of the things that I think, the, you know, I think a thorn with the IO is the time limit. I think the the 10 minutes just, and I know we get the five minutes discussions, but reducing, you know, what is for a lot of teachers, a lot of teaching of things that they're very passionate about. And, it's, you know, the students actually largely really, really enjoy reducing that down to 10 minutes just seems um yeah I think it just seems sad more than anything That's, you know so in the in the IO presentation yeah. you mean the 10 minutes yeah it is quite yeah, inhibitive yeah yeah I mean and of course I get it because you know I understand that it'd be quite intimidating for students to have to talk for 20 minutes as they easily could do or 30 minutes you know but at the same time I think that a lot of teachers who do love what they teach, they find it, you know, yeah, a little bit sad when it is reduced to such a short time limit. Mm. I think the on, just on a personal note, I miss the creative elements. Like I do miss mm. that written task. And I do wonder, you know, students who take higher level literature who are planning to go into creative industries, there is a part of me that wonders where that creativity and the creative writing kind of comes in. Um yeah, so I mean, I, I don't know if they plan on changing the course or whatever, but it would—I'd I'd quite like to see the creative element come back in some iteration. Yeah, it's yeah, it's certainly that—that that tends to be something which um, a lot of the kids get out of. Like even even if they're not going into something creative, like they enjoy, um, yeah, doing something that isn't an analytical essay, essentially, isn't it? Which is quite—it's it's quite nice. Um, it makes me, I don't know whether or not, someone sent me a long time ago, I can't remember if it was the New York Times or the New Yorker, they used to do essays that was that were basically the IO in, in sort of feature length, article yeah. length. I can't remember what they were called, um, but it was almost like someone had read one of them in The Hague and gone, this is such a good idea, we should do this. But like you said, the 10-minute thing, I don't think... You'd like to think that they'd practiced it, you know, in the in the staff room or in the yeah. in the kind of the the coffee house around the corner or something, um, because it just seems like it wasn't until six months into the course that they were going, yeah, in practice you're probably going to need this many minutes for the lit and this many minutes for the mm. the lang, and it was I wonder whether that will be the first thing to get discussed in 2025 or whenever it is in terms yeah. of how can we keep the comparison but get rid of the inhibitive element to it but yeah yeah um, no I think I agree with that yeah definitely when um another part of the kind of course which is um which has changed is the fact that paper two mm. is now the same for lit and uh for language yeah. um and also there's been like a big chat about like how the language bodies of work uh, even that kind mm. of like that that sort of idea of a body of work um they're trying to make both courses as literary as possible or as as maybe that's like not the right word but yeah yeah you know? to have like 
the same amount of depth in terms of um, analysis. So that's another kind of difficulty I think that a lot of teachers have faced, that mm. the language bodies of work are notoriously quite hard to decide upon yeah. uh, in terms of kind of finding a balance with regards to, you know, is this significant in terms of cultural capital? Does it match up with the lit? Does it meet, um, you know, the standards laid down by the IB, et cetera? What's, what are the best three that you've, come across or taught or really really enjoyed um teaching and uh, what are the lit texts that you pair with them um so yeah i think you're right the bodies of work have caused a bit of confusion especially with what is categorized as literary what's categorized as non-literary and mm. um, so yeah when i choose my the, the language and literature when i'm teaching my non-lit bodies of work um i do try and be almost you know, overtly non-literary. So I try and do a lot of visual texts, for example. And so I talked earlier about um, the Love Island episodes that just work so well with the Browning poetry, you know, discussing relationships, the role of men and women, or, you know, sort of traditional viewpoints of, you know, male and female roles in relationships, you know, talking about, you know, kinds of conflict within relationships, what constitutes as abuse, that works so well. But one of the ones that works specifically well in, you know, my local context in Hong Kong is um, I teach Bernie's Days by George Orwell. And obviously a lot of that text is focused on colonialism and, you know, issues to do with racial prejudice and racial hierarchy, um, you know, exploitation of power. Um, there's an Instagram account um, called White Saviour Barbie. Um, and it's it's a satirical Instagram account where, you know, these two people have got a Barbie doll um, and they've positioned her in certain like kind of fake backdrops. Um, and they always say in the country of Africa, and basically they're kind of parodying, you know, this idea of, you know, voluntourism, the white saviour complex in, that's involved in contemporary voluntourism. And that works so well in Hong Kong um, especially because you know we work in schools that have in the past kind of been guilty of you know doing these volunteerism trips um, and again it's that light bulb moment is that sometimes I'm teaching it and the students themselves are like oh wow um, this this is something that I've done or you know this is something I've seen on social media so that works really well um, also, along with Bernie's Days, I do um, a series of skin whitening cream adverts, um, some L'Oreal ones um, from India. Um, they work really well because, again, it's a that's a beauty product that is, you know, I'm sure you know yourself as ubiquitous in Hong Kong. You know, and whenever I do a student say to me, you know, my mum buys these products, you know, my sister does or, you, you know, I know this person who does. And it's really interesting talking to them about, you know, what that product is and how it's advertised and then linking it back to, you know, a book that was created in the 1920s and seeing, you know, those ideas about race that, have been perpetuated, you know, from the birth of colonization to, you know, post-colonial places now. It's, you know, it's just, it just works so well. Um, aside from that, you know, I think looking, another thing that works really well is, I've, and I've actually, when I examined, examined the IO, I did actually hear this one quite a bit, was um, George W. Bush speeches, um, some of his 
political speeches um, being used with books that do discuss, you know, exploitation of power. So, for example, Persepolis. Um, and students, like, looking at something that, you know, it wasn't that long ago, you know, some of the speeches, some of these speeches that weren't from, you know, that long ago, and just how, you know, one way of looking at them is that they're so overtly, you know, propaganda in nature, and kind of looking at how information and language can be manipulated in such a nefarious way. And I think that's another thing that works really well, especially with something like Persepolis, you know? Mm, I thought I did George Bush in, in uh, the Iraq War. Yeah, I thought I was. I thought I was really original choosing. That. <laughs> no, 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 that's obviously not. Um, yeah, the. No, I so, thought I was original too until I started uh, examining the IO and it kept on popping up. And I was like, oh god, <laughs> like. Um. So Burmese days would be the lit text in, yeah. in in the first example, and then I think that Instagram thing is so important, man, because. I sometimes yeah. wonder, I think it's so easy to be caught up in recency bias. Like often I'm part of those Facebook groups um, and like, I don't want to cast aspersions on people who use it. I think it's such a good resource to share things and stuff like that. But it seems like when a really hard hitting documentary comes out on Netflix or something like that, a few people like jump on the thing and go, I want to teach this. Like this is yeah. my body of work. And I think that's really good. But then there's there's also the thing of what's the word like opportunity cost or transaction cost. It's like, yeah. well, instead of why are you doing that documentary instead of Adam Curtis or why 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 are you not doing something by um, what's the name of that um, German geezer that did like a grizzly man? I can't remember. But like, yeah. do you know what I mean? It's like, do, do you go? You've obviously gone with something recent. Mm. over something um which is uh canonical so to speak but i think instagram's one of those things man where it's like even if instagram doesn't stick around which it, i think it probably will there'll be another platform like it and yeah. they all use it all the students well a lot of stu uh, most students use it and a lot of you know kind of 20 something 30 something year old people 40 mm. year old people use it it's so important for them for them to understand like the power that those posts have, I think, in a in a satirical way or in a in any in any particular way. Um, I mean, one of the things that does work really well with that particular, you know, text is that you know it's using the medium to you know kind of poke fun at people who are using the medium. It's yeah, yeah. it's so good in the sense, yeah, it's, it's it's the you know when we talk about the text type itself and say like the choice of the text type is the best part of it, is the, you know, this kind of, the, the whole volunteerism thing, and, you know, you know, essentially a vanity project, and it being using Instagram, which ultimately people do use a lot of the time as a vanity project, hmm. it just works so well. Um, but I think it's really interesting what you've just said there about, you know, jumping on the latest kind of like zeitgeist, you know, Mm. cultural products to use in your IO and I think that I think people have different approaches to it but for me what I tend to do is I start with my literary work and I think like what are the main things I want to look at the main global issues or the main areas I want to look at and then I get the body of work from that because I think if you do that you're less likely to go down as you say that route of choosing something just because it's a bit popular at the moment. Like yeah. I have 
read things online, for example, or people wanting to use Squid Games. Um, yeah. I mean, number one, you can't use that because it's in Korean and you've got to use a text mm. that's in English for the non-literary work. But, you know, I think that, again, yeah, you, you, you do want to use things that are contemporary and relevant, but you don't want that to come at the expense of doing something that's meaningful and significant, you know? Ultimately. Yeah, I, I agree with you, yeah. It, it does seem like a relatively easy win with the students, particularly with Squid Game. Can you imagine like how excited they'd be if they found out yeah. they were studying that? But I think once you kind of scratch beneath the surface, it's like, well, it, it hasn't really stood the test of time and no. stuff, and you don't know whether or not it is. It, it, it might have been like kind of a hit for reasons that kind of – for not you know not the same reasons that like let's say battle royale was a hit or something like that so no i actually um, had that in mind when you were just talking about battle royale because i was remembering mm. that i remember writing about battle royale for a level for gcse mm. you know like kind of one for english one for film studies and it's yeah it's quite interesting when i do think about that aspect of it and how yeah probably at the time maybe my teachers thought it was a bit flash in the pan but yeah, i'm still thinking about it how many years later mm. but yeah no, it's, it's definitely it's definitely an interesting an interesting area i think yeah um the uh the only kind of yeah, the last sort of thing oh I, I got really excited then like halfway through your answer sorry because uh <laughs> i uh i remembered the name of that director verna herzog definitely didn't yeah. google it while you were talking um the oh. Last uh, last question is um, we we, met, we sort of mentioned Facebook already and um, yeah. obviously the textbook, but what are the best resources that you know of for people who are looking to continually improve with the diploma program? Um, I mean, this is an interesting one for me. Um, you kind of know I have perhaps um, quite strident and perhaps controversial views on. Um, how people acquire pedagogical knowledge. I'm quite, for someone who has written a textbook, I'm quite, I don't really, I don't really like going down the route of, you know, too much kind of academia in this. For me, I really like any kind of, you know, professional development that comes from fellow teachers. I think mm. the people who are in the room teaching this course day in, day out, they're your best resource so, you know we're very lucky that we're part of quite a large foundation and you know our best resources our colleagues not just in our own schools but we have such we have such a great resource in in colleagues that are in other schools and you know we do we are provided opportunity to talk to those colleagues about the course and I am always learning my colleagues about from the different texts they're teaching the different things that they're doing in the classroom and for me that's the most you know I, I always say that's the best CPD that you can do is just listening and learning from other teachers. But of course, you know, there are, it's not just, you know, who you personally come into contact with. But, you know, you've mentioned Facebook. I don't actually have Facebook, but um, I know that people do use, you know, like Twitter and other kinds of, you know, I suppose like not even social media, but what do they call them? Like edu spaces, virtual mm. edu spaces. But my other one that I actually found so useful is examining. I think that I know that you're, I mean, I don't, I don't think you particularly agree with me on this, but um, I, I actually do think that being an IB examiner is, it was, it was the best CPD that I did for this new course, aside from writing that textbook. Um, it was, it was examining and seeing, I got some, I got some great ideas for texts 
to teach and bodies of work to teach. But simultaneously, I also got um, some ideas of text to not teach um, <laughs> because that I heard, you know, I'll name and shame, um, Caroline Duffy. I, I cannot tell you how many IOs, Caroline Duffy IOs I listened to. Um, yeah, so that was an interesting one. So I, I mean, I wasn't teaching it anyway, but I automatically was like, I'm not going to teach that. Um, and there was, what, was, what was that based on, Alice? Just because of because of frequency or? Yeah, um, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't have taught Caroline Duffy anyway because I was taught it in school. Yeah. And I do have this thing about I try not to teach things that I was taught in school explicitly because, yeah, I just feel like it's a bit of a cop-out. But also, and I think, God, surely things have moved on. Surely we've moved on since, you know, I'm not going to reveal how many years ago. But So I like to think that we've progressed in our English teaching since then. But also I do think that, you know, as attitudes towards, you know, gender especially uh, become more fluid and expansive. I'm not sure how reductive, and again, this is going to be really controversial, but I don't know how reductive Caroline Duffy is. Actually, mm. in some of the poetry, I actually am not sure how reductive it is in her perspective towards gender anyway. So I try to avoid it, but it came up, honestly, like I would say probably out of every five that I listened to, one would be a Caroline Duffy poem. Mm. Um, so yeah, that gave me ideas about what not to teach, but also, you know, there was, it was, it was global issues that came up again and again, you know, gender representation, power structures, came up again and again so actually this time um this time around I have changed some of my text thinking about do I want to go outside of that for the global issues so you know I didn't this surprised me but I didn't get many IOs that looked at for example um the environment I didn't mm. look I didn't you know I know I listened to one that was all about um not power structures in terms of politics but power structures in terms of the economy and they looked at you know economic factors that you know affect you know hierarchy with you know power hierarchy within society and it was an absolute pleasure to listen to because genuinely I hadn't heard anything like that and that kind of you know I again yeah. changed the text for that sexuality I didn't hear really anything that covered sexuality and that's why this year I've said to my students you know we can we can do on earth a briefly gorgeous the ocean Vong novel mm. because you know, I thought that that might be nice, you know, to kind of go down that route as well. So, yeah, for me, examining the, you know, IO paper one, for me, that was really, really good way of, of working out how to improve my own teaching. I did, I did learn a lot from it. And I know that not everyone, not everyone will get it from, you know, that process, but I, I certainly did anyway. That's really interesting. Yeah, that that kind of idea of like, do you go down the sort of the the, the concepts like you know masculinity and femininity and the, like you were saying like power structures like the government and activism mm -hmm. and stuff like that. It seems they do seem so well worn, like all those yeah. topics. And then I kind of I, I go like eight or nine tenths of the way of getting rid of them, and then I think to myself. But then some of the girls in the class might benefit from reading this and stuff. And I, I always find myself in that, like, a bit of a kind of um, a tug of war in terms of what I want to do, which would be, you know, different from what I've done before, like you say. So, like, sexuality or eco-criticism or whatever. And then I think, oh, but then 
maybe they do need to do something about like racism or stuff like that. It's hard, man. Yeah. But I suppose circling back to what you said before, at least you've got the opportunity to do that in the IB course, whether mm. it's Langley or it's so good that you can kind of take one out and put one in next time. Um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it is really good. Um, okay. Well, um, the only thing that remains for me to say is, uh, thanks a lot, Alice, for uh, giving up your time today and sharing some of your, uh, textbook worthy wisdom on the uh, diploma program and beyond and uh, no worries thank you so much for having me